Welcome to another exciting installment of Just a Podcast. My name is Just Bob. Thank you for joining me today. And I want to start out by saying we're talking about horror movies in this episode. And we're getting pretty detailed. So, uh, first of all, if you have not yet seen the movie, nope, there will be spoilers. Okay, so if you haven't, you have the option to come back and listen to this when you have, or take your chances. Also, uh, people who have uh, uh, were triggered by uh, descriptions of violence and things like that, uh, I'll be discussing some of those topics as well. So just so you are fully aware before we get started. A few days ago, uh, I guess this would have been four days ago, I realize you're not listening to this as I'm recording it, so it's not necessarily going to be that long ago. But anyway, over the week, over this past weekend, I watched the movie Nope. And uh, if you're unfamiliar, it is uh, the third movie from writer-director Jordan Peele. And I had not seen either of his previous two movies, which were Get Out and Us. Although I heard great things about both of them, my own personal history was when I was a kid in the early 80s, horror movies were everywhere all the time. I mean, they were running on the UHF channels every weekend. They were running at the drive-in movie theaters, and of course they were all over the premium channels, which were sort of just getting started at the time. Like, we didn't have a cable box when I was a kid. We had HBO, right? And there was a satellite, a little mini satellite dish on the roof, which was approximately the size and shape of a good salad bowl, like a serving bowl, not like the ones you eat out of. And you would turn the TV to channel three and then hit a switch (laughs) and it would turn on and you would see whatever HBO was showing at the time. You know, I saw the Friday the 13th and the Halloweens and uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre and uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, all of the, the, the classic franchises that were that were big in the 80s. I saw all those movies, and I was not put off by the the gore or, or like, the blood and guts or, or anything like that. You know, I mean, when I was, I was seven, eight, nine years old. And it wasn't just in my house either. It was, like, prevalent. It was everywhere. I remember very distinctly, I was around eight years old, and the family was going to the home of some family friends, you know, this other family that we were friends with. And while everyone else, my parents and my sister are getting ready to go, I'm sitting on the living room couch and I am watching uh, Friday the 13th. <laughs> And so we get going, leave. It's like the middle of the movie. Now these friends of ours, they lived in our neighborhood. So it was, you know, a walk two blocks down and one over. We get there and 
the two youngest kids, the ones that I hung out with, what are they doing? They're watching the same movie that I was watching at home before we left. And that kind of thing happened all the time. I mean, all the time. And that continued pretty much into my adulthood. You know, I went to see a few of them in the movie theater, but uh, I saw a lot more on cable, on TV, you know, just the, the not just the premium channels, but also the your, your basic sort of cable channels. And uh, like I said, you know, it didn't really bother me or, or anything. I wasn't squeamish or, or anything like that, at least not then. So fast forward, I was about 30 years old when Saw came out. And I remember going to see it. I actually bought a ticket and went to the movie theater and was like horrified. <laughs> I really was like absolutely hor like it was over the top. It was too much. You know, it just kind of like grossed me out. It was it was bad enough. I mean, the movie itself was good, but it just seemed like the the overall plot was nothing but a cheap gimmick to just torture people. And it there was like this this menace to it, you know? And then about a year after that, I walked away from that and I was I was a little unsure, like where where did this reaction come from? Because I'd never, you know, I'd never had that sort of a reaction. And then about a year later, Hostel comes out. And I did not see that in the movie theater, but I did catch it on TV, and it was on uh, was on HBO or Showtime, whatever one I had at the time. I don't remember. Um, and I watched that movie and I actually turned it off about halfway through because, I mean, that's all it was, you know, just people inflicting pain on other people. I know it's just a movie, but the way that it was depicted, I mean, it was an impressive piece of filmmaking. I will say that, but I realized that this just ain't my thing anymore. And, and that was it. I, I did not watch another horror movie until this past week. And that's absolutely true. And, uh, so some years ago, and I'm, I'm actually going to look this up because I'm curious, but, uh, some years ago, there was a, a, a news article that I read about a woman who was attacked by a chimpanzee that a friend of hers was keeping uh, as a pet. And uh, this woman, her name was, was uh, uh, Sharla Nash. Okay, and this was in 2009. The chimpanzee, who was named Travis... Um, attacked her, um, like basically tore her face and hands off. I mean, did a number 
on this lady. And, uh, you know, the chimp was, was shot by police. I write about this in an article, and uh, I was very horrified. And they showed pictures of what she looked like before and after. And this woman ended up having a like a face transplant. I mean, it was like it was like super gnarly. And that for whatever reason, that story just wedged itself into my brain and it just like kept resurfacing, you know, and it really freaked me out. And uh, so I was reading something this over the weekend and it, it was uh, made mention of the movie Nope. And this is your last chance if you haven't seen it because there are spoilers happening now. All right. Uh, I figure it's safe. I mean, the movie came out a year ago. But uh, there was, uh, I read an article that said that there was a, a a chimp attack in the movie. And it was most likely inspired by that real life story that I'd seen. And uh, I was like, man, you know, the curiosity is there, even though you think this is not probably going to be very pleasant to watch. And uh, finally, my curiosity got the better of me, and I tracked the movie down and watched it. And the 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 premise is is this. All right, there's this, and this 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 particular scene is set in the year 1997, or I'm sorry, 1998, and it's like this uh, stereotypical 90s type sitcom called Gordy's Home, and Gordy is a chimpanzee who was involved with the space program. And this guy who is a rocket scientist, his wife's an astronaut, uh, they bring the chimp home, and the chimp lives with their family. They're two kids. And they're doing, like, this birthday episode of the show and they're like giving gifts to the chimp and whatnot and one of the gifts has like is like a box full of helium balloons and when the box is open the balloons drift up in the sound stage and they hit the the hot stage lights and start popping and the sound of the popping uh along with the audience and the and the cast and crew staring at the chimp, he goes into a, like a fight or flight response and he just starts messing people up. So the cast, uh, all dead except for the kids. And the girl basically gets her face ripped off like Charla Nash in real life. Now, and this is not depicted, all right? All you see is, you. It, it's like the, the, the action is blocked. <laughs> so you can hear this happening. You can hear 
screams of pain and 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 these noises of like flesh tearing and whatnot. And but you don't see her again. Well, I'll get to that later. And then the the boy is hiding under the table, and apparently that's like something his character does. But the chimp comes out of his fugue state, and he says in sign language, what happened to the family? Like, it was like a blackout or something. And he he, come, he approaches the boy who has witnessed this whole rampage. You know, you, the viewer, have only seen little bits of it. He's the, He was there for the whole thing. And the chimp sees him under the table, and... This scene is, it's shown at the very beginning of the movie. The chimp looks into the camera. And then the scene cuts. And when when I saw that, my my heart was thumping. I mean, that, that really got me. So they come back to that scene later in the movie and, and provide more context, okay? And what happens after he sees the kid under the table, he comes over. And their thing was they do like the exploding fist bump and and the chimp raises his fist to to bump with the boy. And as the boy's raising his hand in turn, cops come in and and shoot the chimp dead. <laughs> so the boy is like splattered with the chimp's blood. I mean, it's like hardcore thing, all right. So uh, many years later, the the actor who played the boy on the show has his own theme park that he's opened out in the desert. And it's like based off of a movie called Kid Sheriff. It was like a in-universe movie that the kid, Jupe is the kid's name, that he starred in. And uh, so this guy, Jupe, has the... Uh, the dubious luck, I suppose, of having discovered a um, a UFO. And uh, long story, I'm not going to give you the whole plot of the movie, but I'll just I'm just going to touch on a couple of things here. He he encounters this apparent space alien, and it's determined that it is an alien creature and not a, like, spacecraft with a crew in it, okay? But uh, Jupe is feeding the alien horses, right? And because next door to his theme park, there is a horse ranch that is owned by the Haywood family. Um, That's... uh, uh, the Patriarch Otis, uh, played by Keith David, and his kids, uh, played by Kiki Palmer and uh, Daniel Kaluuya. All right. And uh, so Jupe's buying horses from the ranch and feeding them to the alien. And the alien, like, hovers in the air and it, like, sucks its prey up into its mouth-slash-eye sort of thing. And... Eventually, it starts taking people, 
and there's a scene there where it basically sucks up this entire, like 40, 50 people, this entire group of people that are there at the park, and it cuts to an inside shot where you can see the people going through the alien's digestive tract. And, I mean, there's nothing really graphic about it. It's, like, dark, and you hear people screaming and moaning and all this stuff. I mean, imagine... and this, See, this is where the psychological thing comes in for me, because imagine that that something like that was, you know, happening in real life, and you get sucked up into the maw of this alien creature... I mean, they don't even know if, if it's alien. They're, they assume that it's an alien. They get sucked up inside this thing. Imagine you're in some alien's intestines with a bunch of strangers. And you're going to be digested because you have been eaten alive. Like, there are a lot of ways that I would definitely not want to die, and being eaten alive by anything is right at the top of the list. Like, there's that, there's, like, burning to death, wouldn't want to do that. Um, falling from a great height, wouldn't want to do that. You know, but, yeah, the whole thought of being eaten alive just, just, I, it gives me, like, a visceral reaction. I mean, it freaks me out, like, more than you can even imagine. But it was like, it was like the, you know, the thing with the chimp. Just imagining, like, what what do you do? You're confronted with a wild animal. And this is one of the the, the primary points of the movie, all right? People have the human race has collectively convinced itself that it is capable of domesticating animals you know what i mean and in a lot of cases like like a chimpanzee for example they're only trainable to a certain point, and unless you are extremely careful around them, uh, there's a bunch of things you can't do in the presence of a chimpanzee because it'll set it off. You can't look it in the eyes, and you, you know you can't move certain way. You know, there's a lot of things you need to know. So. When you see a chimpanzee in a movie, and this is true of like old movies, older, and TV shows. Like there was a time in the, in the early '80s, it seems like when chimpanzees were everywhere. And knowing that now, it's kind of astonishing to me that there weren't more incidents like the Gordy's home episode. And I want to stress they did not use a real chimpanzee for that. Okay. In, in, uh, nope. The chimpanzee in the movie is a man in a motion capture suit. <laughs> Cause 
it would be really dumb and kind of hypocritical to do a movie with an Aesop about how it's impossible to train animals and then use trained animals <laughs> in the same manner, you know. Now, I admit that uh, I, I have a certain morbid fascination about that. Um, if you have not seen it, I, I recommend you check out the movie uh, Grizzly Man. That's a documentary by Werner Herzog documenting the life and, and death of this guy by the name of Timothy Treadwell. And he was considered himself like a conservationist and animal rights activist, and he went to Alaska and interacted with the native bears for 13 years in a row. And that last, that 13th year, he's killed very brutally by a bear, and his girlfriend, who was with him, um, assisting him, is also killed by the bear. And, like, for the previous 12 years, they told him, the rangers and, and the pilots and the people that he dealt with there in Alaska, they told him, you got to get out of here by a certain time of year because as the autumn comes in, the bears are preparing to go into hibernation and they're hungry because food is scarce and they're more likely to attack a human if their normal prey is scarce. And that's pretty much exactly what happened. And it's very, the, the temptation is great to say that somebody like Timothy Treadwell sort of makes his own luck. If you ignore the advice of experts, then you are sort of bringing misfortune upon yourself. And that, that's something that I very firmly believe to be true. And his problem, his delusion, was that he believed that he had a kinship with these bears that they knew him, that they had any sort of, uh, you know, anything, you know, they like they cared about him or, or recognized him or knew him or thought of him as a friend or whatever like that, you know what I mean? And in, in Herzog's narration in the movie, he says... You know, all I see is is indifference. And uh, the wildlife experts that they talked to in the movie said they're, they're honestly surprised based on Treadwell's behavior. They're surprised that he didn't get killed even sooner than he did. And that the main reason he didn't probably is because his presence and actions confused the bears so much that they didn't know what to do. So... It was the equivalent of, like, backing slowly out of the room, you know? 
until the year got late, the bears got hungry, the man got careless, and he got someone else killed along with himself, which is a pretty lousy deal. But I'll be honest with you, if somebody offered me the opportunity to go to Alaska and live amongst the bears, I would say unequivocally and without hesitation, hell no. There is absolutely no way. But that movie, Grizzly Man, you know, I saw it once and it freaked me out so bad. And just to make matters worse, like I've mentioned on the air before that I I frequently use Pluto TV. Are you familiar with Pluto TV? It's a streaming app with a bunch of free channels on it, so free content. But they have a documentary channel, and that documentary channel was for a time running Grizzly Man a couple of times a week. And because I'm me, uh, that is to say susceptible to schmuck bait, I watched it. I watched it a number of times. And another one similar, uh, Blackfish. And this one uh, really stuck to my brain for very similar reasons. Uh, this one is about a an orca whale by the name of Tillicum, who over the course of his life killed three human beings. Um, he was uh, an orca. He was at uh, a uh, like a like a sea park in Canada, and one of the trainers there. Uh, he pulled into the water and beat the hell out of her and drowned her. And sometime after that, the whale was moved to SeaWorld in Orlando, Florida. At some point, a guy, Florida man, I mean, it is Florida, a Florida man in one of his many uh, incarnations shows up at SeaWorld one night, decides he's going to take a ride on a killer whale and, well, let's just say they found him there the next morning and uh, you know, uh, in a a way that guy was kind of like Treadwell in that you go into the place where a wild animal is living and you act up, they'll let you know. You know, they're they're running on instinct. And uh, in the case of the whale, you gotta you gotta think of it this way. Whales are they have a lot in common with humans in the way that they think and their socialization. You know, they, they're mammals like we are, and they, they, they think the way that we do in, in many ways. And so they don't care too much for being in captivity. And, I mean, you can't blame them for that. Who the hell would want to be locked up all and made to perform, you know? And so 
but the thing is, in this case, in in the case of Tilcom the whale, the fact he killed somebody, and SeaWorld still acquired him and brought him in, killed somebody else, and he was still, you know, with the public. And then he killed another tra- trainer at SeaWorld itself. And the, you know, the people in charge there tried to blame the victim that it was somehow her fault. You know, uh, yeah, Blackfish is the name. Uh, if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's very interesting, but it's a very sad story. And and it's it's the same it's the same lesson that you, you can't truly train a wild animal and if if you work with wild animals you've got to make sure that you uh respect them and uh that you don't do anything to upset them, which means you've got to, you know, learn what to do. But it's just like, uh, there is something about the idea that, I'm I'm going back to Nope now. I, I will tie all this together, I promise. The idea, though, that you could be just like, you know, on the ground, you know, like in your backyard, and some thing appears overhead and sucks you up into the sky. <laughs> like, how could you defend yourself from that? I mean, that's <laughs> that's one of those thoughts that I don't recommend dwelling upon because it'll... It'll make you nuts. Just like like the, the digestion scene I mentioned earlier. I can't even imagine. I mean, it's it's like my 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 imagination shuts itself off <laughs> whenever it turns in that direction. Because the idea of it is just so horrifying. And uh you know, I think that's why I I lost my taste for horror movies like I did because I just and this might sound corny or, or or something or whatever but I just got to where like watching people getting hurt you know, even in a fictional sense, watching people getting chainsawed or axed or stabbed or, you know, whatever the case may be, it wasn't fun for me anymore. And even though as an adult, I I know that it's just movie magic, you know. I mean, that person is doesn't actually have an axe embedded in their chest. It's just latex and, and foam rubber and things like that. 
I actually went to Universal Studios when I was a kid. My my family we went we were in Los Angeles on vacation and uh, went to Universal Studios and did the Universal Studios tour. And somewhere in one of my mom's photo albums is a picture of me holding up a prop version of the A-Team van. It was like this van. It was like a full-size van. And it looked completely real, but it was made out of foam. So it weighed you know, five pounds. I mean, it was like, well, maybe not. It was a little heavier than that. I mean, it, it took me a little bit of effort as an eight-year-old. It took me a little bit of effort to raise it up off the ground. Movie magic, you know? And uh, it's like recently a, a video clip surfaced and went viral, and it was a... Scene from the TV show Dawson's Creek. All right, there's a scene where uh, James Vanderbeek as Dawson hurls a basketball, and it hits Joshua Jackson as Pacey Witter hits him right in the right in the face. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now this, I don't know when it aired, but it was presumably right around the year 2000. So it's not a new thing, but it resurfaced as these things often do and the great debate that was happening on Reddit and Twitter particularly was trying to figure out how they how it was shot you know because it looks like a real basketball when it hits him in the face it makes a that bing sound you know like uh Picture getting hit with a dodgeball, that sound. And I knew the sound was dubbed on there, but it looked really real. And somebody says to jo- to Joshua Jackson, I guess he was doing an interview for a movie or something, and they brought this up and they asked him about it, and he said there wasn't there wasn't much to it really. You know, they took a, a a a beach ball and painted it to look like a basketball. And you know, beach balls, beach balls are even when they're fully inflated, they're they're extremely light. And uh, the usual assortment of conspiracy theorists who don't believe anything that actually did happen and believe in everything that didn't, apparently, was saying that if that was a beach ball, there's no way that he could have thrown it hard enough. (sighs) Come on. I mean, you need the suspension of disbelief for one thing, but for another, after having spent hours of time on various occasions, like racking my actual brains trying to figure these kinds of things out, suddenly I had a revelation and I said, who gives a damn? 
<laughs> you know what I mean? Like, knowing how this particular shot was achieved by that particular film crew, you know, coming into possession of that knowledge would not enhance my life in any way at all. <laughs> See, that's pragmatism, you know? When I was in my early 20s, I was an optimist. And uh, I learned over time that when you always expect the best, uh, you often find instead the worst. <laughs> and so my, my thinking sort of adjusted as it does. And uh, I was like, well, you hope the best will happen, but you know the worst is a possibility. And that's kind of the way I try to approach things. You know, I've, I've spoken on here before about my, my struggles with uh, anxiety and... That, you know, it's it's a work in progress. That's just how that's how it is with these things. Uh, so you you got to be prepared to um, kind of put the time in, and uh, I found a lot of times that people have an expectation of permanence. And I don't know why. You know, I saw in a meme recently uh, that human beings have a lot of nerve <laughs> to uh, refer to anything as being uh, traditional because human beings have only existed on Earth for seven thousandth of a percent of the Earth's lifespan. People use the term forever very freely, and we as a species don't know the first thing about it. Not really. Because it's something that the human mind can't grasp. It's like it's like death. You know, we we talk about it. I mean we're we're good with death as a concept. But that's all it is. It's a concept. It's uh, an abstraction. And the reality, I mean, you can't... You can't conceive of non-existence because you exist. <laughs> you know? Like the idea of nothingness. Like I watched... I mentioned this on a previous podcast, too. I, I, I binged Marvel's What If one night. I watched the whole series in one night. Because there was only like eight, eight or nine episodes or something like that. And there is one where the one with uh, Doctor Strange where he ends up destroying the universe that he lives in. This is like an alternate version to, like, the one in the movie. Destroys it. So he's, like, floating in an... in a, like, oh, this white void. 
And I remember watching it and, like, just being like, you know, it would take, like, 11 seconds for the average person in today's world to completely lose their mind if they were to ever find themselves in some kind of an actual void. And it's only getting worse all the time. Like, people's attention span is getting shorter. And our dependence and reliance on technology and devices and stuff like that, it's only growing. And that's probably not a trend that we will see slow, let alone reverse itself in our lifetimes. And I don't care how old you are. <laughs> it's going to be generations. before. Of course, that is if, if we make it that long. I heard the song in the year 2525 not that long ago. I don't remember. I, I, I may have seen it in a movie or on a TV commercial or whatever, but it... It got me thinking, and I went and and I googled the song and and reread up a few things. And if you're unfamiliar, this is a song was a Billboard number one hit in the year 1969. Now that's before I was born, but uh, I I discovered it at some point in my childhood and realized. You know, this is a song that basically speculates and kind of postulates on the state of the world and where it's going to be in these regular intervals that go all the way up like 10,000 years, something like that. And... uh it's like this is what happens to the human race. We come we become completely dependent on technology to the point where at a certain point people evolve to no longer have limbs. <laughs> you know, nobody you don't walk, you don't have to pick up anything, you don't have to see any, you know, everything is is done for you. And that's right before the human race collapses, which would happen in real life. But it's interesting to think, and I understand these are just song lyrics. <laughs> you know, this is not like a like an academic paper <laughs> or something like that, but 10,000 years. Sounds like a long time, doesn't it, to you? It does to me. It's not. <laughs> you know, I mean, the the planet Earth has existed for billions of years, and there are certain plant and insect species that have been around for multiple millions of years. The human race has uh, got just about 200,000 years under its belt. That's the, the general consensus among scientists. 200,000 years. And that sounds like a long time. But, you know, from the standpoint of the, the larger world and the universe, I mean, 
human life, human life is the blink of an eye. It's over in, you know, like a nanosecond in, in, in the, in the general sense. And, uh, I'm confronted from time to time with the the notion that we're just small and insignificant, that we will never have any kind of real understanding of the world beyond the one we're living in. And... Uh, It always brings me sort of back around to the animals. <laughs> you know, they don't really have to care about the things that people consider important. They're too busy surviving and not going extinct. That's kind of what their whole thing is about. And... Human beings have assigned value to all kinds of things that don't deserve to have value. You know, people talk about, I see this on the socials all the time, like people talking about like rules of English. Like they forget that the rules of English were created by people. You know, language is not a thing of nature. Language is 100% man-made. Words mean what they do because somebody decided they did. So it's entertaining to me when somebody gets all up in arms. I'll tell you a, a conflict that I see often, and it is the difference in spelling between words in American English and words in British English. And I'll give you just an easy example. All right, consider the word color. Now, here in the U.S., of course, we spell that C-O-L-O-R. In the U.K. and in Canada as well, there's a U in there. They spelled C-O-L-O-U-R. Now, both spellings are considered correct depending upon where you are. And having written, or excuse me, having read books written by Englishmen and women, I've seen that spelling hundreds of times. I mean, just, just, by reading the the works of Douglas Adams alone, <laughs> I've probably seen that word in in print more than anywhere else. And yet, in the year twenty twenty three, on the internet, people are arguing right at this moment about whether the U is proper or not. They don't care that it's in the Oxford English Dictionary which is basically, it's like the master key to the English language. And 
we had when I was in middle school, we had a massive copy of the Oxford English Dictionary in the library, and it was on. First of all, this book is. Oh, it's two by four feet in size. It's gigantic. And it's on this, like, this stand, this, like, lectern stand. And that thing's gigantic. And it weighs about 100 pounds. There's a lot of words in there, yo. That's what I'm saying. But we have people, and it's just, you know... It's so very entertaining to me that people still argue about that sort of thing. Because if you look at the the grand scheme of things, it's not really significant. I mean, there are certain common mistakes that people make, such as Confusion of your and your, which is a very common one, and it's one that I have never, ever been able to understand. Why is that so hard for people to remember? I learned it in the first grade, like, seriously. And, but you know what? Eventually, you realize if I'm the one who's always cracking jokes about this, Eventually, the people that I know are going to just think that I'm a jerk and they're going to get tired of it. Believe it or not, most people don't like being corrected. And personally, I can tell you that it took me much longer than it should have in order to learn that lesson. I'm embarrassed to admit. So for the most part, I don't correct people unless they ask for it. And and sometimes they do. A lot of people I know will use me as a sounding board for English matters. And I don't mind that. I mean, I was an English major in college. And when it comes to grammar and spelling and things, I do know a lot of that stuff. And... But, you know, I, I when I was in college, I wanted to become a writer, and uh, I've written a couple of books. But for me, undertaking a real massive project like that is just like, it is very time-consuming, you know. I, I When I was writing my first book, I worked on it with every moment of spare time. When I had downtime at work, I was writing. When I was sitting at home doing nothing, I was writing. You know, I mean, I was writing all the time. And that's great when you're in the middle of it, but it's very daunting to know that I have 50,000 words that I need to come up with. Like, I swear I'm getting a headache right now just describing it to you. So, 
spelling and grammar are important when you're writing a book. They're important when you're writing any sort of professional work that people are going to see, you know? I mean, you could be writing a pamphlet. You could be writing a sign, you know? I mean, it could be anything, but people need to be able to read it and they're going to give it more weight and consideration if it at least looks somewhat professional. I see signs for businesses at times, you know, out in the wild where the signs are like hand lettered or in some cases look like they were done with spray paint, whatever. And well, if, if that's working for them, you know, that's fine. But if you were to draw the conclusion that something like that is like maybe like a low rent operation or whatever, I mean, I think that might be understandable too. But, you know, my point is if if you're writing things that others are going to read and, oh, I'll give you a great example, okay? So certain businesses that have a social media presence, which they all do these days, it's, it's, it's basically a necessity. And whoever is running the page or the account is, is doing posts that are just like their own personal posts. You know, so uh, every sentence ends with LOL and the words are all misspelled, you know, and it just looks, it looks very sloppy and, and, and kind of unprofessional. And I, I personally have actually had to force myself to sort of discard that because I've, I've met people that I knew first on socials and their social media presence is like uh, very informal, which is true of a lot of people. But if you're not careful, it can color your perception of people. So if, if someone spells everything wrong in their social media posts and they, you know, they never use any punctuation or, or whatever the case may be, you might go into meeting that person in the flesh with the notion that they're not too smart. I've done it before. I'm not proud of it. And, uh, I was proven wrong. I'm happy to say. Happy to say. And had the thought that, you know, you shouldn't... Now, this is quite some time ago I'm talking about, but it's a good reminder that... I mean, yeah, there's the, the cliche, don't judge a book by its cover. And you still hear that from time to time because it is... It's still true to... To a large extent. But it's also important 
you know, people talk to you in a lot of ways, aside from just, you know, normal speech. They talk to you by their actions. They talk to you by the way they treat you. They talk to you by the way they conduct themselves, you know. I mean, almost everything you say or do is in one way or another, it is like a proclamation of your identity. And we're defined in many ways by the sum of all of those parts together. So people are complex things. And as much as I might say that we as a race have our heads up our asses, overly concerned with things that really do not have the significance to justify such attentions, all right? But we do it anyway. And uh, I feel like we've lost any sort of sense of perspective But I, I do think that we've done some pretty amazing stuff collectively. We've progressed as a species at a rate far in excess of any other in the, in the history of the world. And, uh, we're capable of doing good. Some of us choose to ignore that, but it does happen. At least I hope it does. I hope you see it. I try to. I can be cynical sometimes. It's easy to think the worst. It's it's difficult and challenging to think the best, but it's rewarding too. Uh, like I said, you know, you, you can hope for the best and accept the possibility of the worst. <laughs> uh, you know, I've had debates with people about that before. Say, well, you're just waiting for the shoe to drop. And no, that's not true. That's never been true. I think it's just important to acknowledge the reality of the situation, which is that stuff happens and not everything is in your control. When something goes wrong, you make the best of it because that's really the only choice that we have. I mean, to do otherwise is self-destruction in some way or another. And uh, I don't know about you, but feel like I got a couple of things left to do. So on that upbeat note, I'm going to close now. And I ask you to remember two things. One, don't mess with wild animals. Like they'll like actually kill you. And the other is when you think of it, as you're moving through the world, try just sometimes to 
hope for the best, even if you are prepared for the possibility of the worst. This has been Just a Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, ta-ta.